Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and uh, we're going to have another show talking about the Kingdom of God. I've uh, done a lot of different work this week uh, on uh, the websites and talking to different ministers and people across the country. Um, I've expanded uh, our one of our ministry pages that talks about uh, ministry. I expanded uh, other pages that talk about the role of a minister and what a minister can do to help facilitate uh this directive by Jesus Christ to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And uh, because most of the churches are absolutely doing the opposite of what Christ said to do. As a matter of fact, they're almost all advocates of the Corbin of the Pharisees. They, they are advocating that you participate in the Corbin of the Pharisees. And those ministers themselves participate in the Corbin of the Pharisees. But they keep it from you so that you don't understand what the Corbin of the Pharisees was. And we've done whole shows on that. We're not going to do a whole show on it today. But uh, this idea of going to the temple, which was a government building, and obtaining welfare for your parents, the care of your parents in their old age, from that government building, which was the temple. They call it the temple, but you can call it all kinds of things today. You can call it the Social Security Administration. But if And you contribute. All the children of a father and mother contribute to that temple, that government building, to the ministers who work there at that government building. And that money goes to take care of their parents. So they don't have to do no more ought for their parents. That And you have to pay in to that system because you have pledged to pay into that system when you signed up And got a number from that system. And that number allows you to work. Allows you to, you know, get bank accounts and do all kinds of things. Because it's not just a social security number. It is, it it actually operates as a federal employee identification number. Because whenever you go to a federal employer which is almost every employer in the United States, because he's got a federal employer identification number, he's going to fill out forms, including that number, when he hires you. And then he's going to put his number as a federal employer identification number on those forms. And whatever you do, whatever work you do, He's not going to pay you for all that work. He's going to take some of what he would have paid you and he's going to send it into the temple. You know, the government building. That's what temples were. Temples were government buildings. 
And you're going to have faith that when you're old, that they're going to provide you with social welfare if you need it. Or you may not even get old. You may have a car accident or injury or become crippled or whatever. They will take care of you. All you have to do is show your number. And then they will go out and take money from other people and even borrow money from the future. So when they borrow money of the future, they're they're making all those people who become into the system a surety for that debt. And, and your parents are a surety for that debt and you're a surety for that debt and your children are a surety for that debt. That is the Corbin. Of the Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what Herod had set up. And he was able to do that. Because the church in the wilderness. With the Levites. The religious of that day. Had already strayed away from the principles. Of Moses. They had gone another way. They didn't do it all in one day. They didn't do it all under Herod. Herod made huge leaps and strides. Setting up this new welfare system. And the same kind of welfare system had been already been begun in Rome. Rome used to take care of its needy through faith, hope, and charity. Through, you know, mostly through the family and through contributions of the people. When they built a temple, they used, the people used to go down and throw money on the ground and they would set the first stone of the temple on top of that money that they set on the ground. So that money underneath that stone was kind of like a reserve fund if they needed more money. You know, if they got down so low in resources that they needed more money, they could move that stone. Of course, they'd have to take the temple down and move that stone. And But they were, that made them operating in the black because they had, they always knew they had some money underneath that first stone. <laughs> but then they would, they would all the money that would come in they would take some of it and they would melt it down and put it into a statue and they would call that statue the reserve fund at least they did in Greece uh, they probably called it all kinds of things but you knew that the money you invested in that temple that was going to provide services for your society was solvent because you could see the statue of gold there in the midst of the temple so you knew that what you, and so you would defend that temple from invaders. You would defend and, and you would continue to contribute because you knew that there were funds there for you. You had that affirmation by the golden statue. And in some countries when difficulties came, they actually sawed off limbs of the statue, <laughs> melted them down and turned them into coins to pay the army. Uh, because they got into the reserve fund. There was usually an uproar. Perseus did this in Greece. But uh, that's what these statues were. That's what the golden calf was. That's what all this stuff was. It all had a practical purpose. But originally, you know, the temples were not buildings. There were often buildings there, but they were not these big fancy stone buildings. They were just kind of shelters, maybe like a barn or something. It was an area that was a temple area. It was a sacred area. I mean, if you went there, there was no fighting there. You weren't supposed to do anything, you know, no criminal activity. It was a sacred area because the whole community would go there 
for their festivals, who would go there to contribute to the whole community, to the priests of their community, to help, and those priests were to help take care of society, help maintain society, make make it a union, so that if they were attacked or if they had a catastrophe, you would go there to get aid, to get assistance, and often the priests were organizing that assistance. And that assistance often required sacrifice, and sometimes it required courage, and uh, sometimes it required service. But the nature of these systems were originally voluntary. That's why you see in the Old Testament free will offerings. And you people wean themselves away from a free will society by starting to do things that are more controlling compelling, forcing. You know, they they sit and eat with rulers with a great appetite and these rulers are going to force the contributions of the people. First, they may force the contributions just for national defense. And and they draft a few soldiers. You know, they, they go out and list everybody. David did this, started listing everybody so that he could draft men into the army, the young men into the army. He repented of that because he realized that that was wrong. And uh, Saul, you know, he uh, he had uh, forced a contribution to to prepare for a battle against the Philistines. And Samuel said that because he did that, his kingdom wouldn't stand. He said it was a foolish thing. Uh, all All governments do that now. But the people don't see it. They don't know that that's contrary to the ways of God. They don't know it because they've already abandoned the ways of God following false Christs, false prophets, false teachers. And they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They're they're going a different way than Christ said to go. They're going the way of the Pharisees. But they call themselves Christians. They say, Lord, Lord, we're doing all these things in your name. But he doesn't even know them, and they don't even know him. So in instructing ministers, how do we teach people what Jesus was really saying? Because they don't want to hear it. I mean, just today. Uh, uh, it was on Facebook. Somebody was asking about marriage and he, uh, he showed a, uh, article. He says, I, I got a question.org. What constitutes marriage according to the Bible? Uh, what constitutes marriage according to the Bible is his first question, question and the answer he's got written here on this gotquestions.org. Is the Bible nowhere explicitly states uh, at what point God considers a man and woman to be married? Due to the Bible's silence on this matter, it's actually not silent on this matter. (laughs) There's all kinds of references to what constitutes marriage. And uh, there's a great deal written about it. And this guy seems to be completely oblivious uh, to this. I haven't read the entire article. Uh, but he starts off with the first point. He says, God only considers a man and woman married 
when they are legally married. The scripture supports typically given to this view is the command to obey government's laws. The government's law. And he quotes Romans 13. Well, he doesn't understand Romans 13. And he doesn't understand law. Law is by contract. That's how you establish law. Or you break a law and then you, you know, uh, the basic laws of the Ten Commandments. That's, that's fundamental law. That is natural law. Ten Commandments is actually natural law. Did you know that? <laughs> Most people don't get it. They don't, they don't understand natural law. They don't understand the Ten Commandments. That, why isn't in the Ten Commandments do they have a list of punishments if you break this law? If you break this law, this is what's going to happen to you. We're going to have a jury. They're going to try you. And they're going to sentence you to this because you broke this law. They don't, they don't have that because what the Ten Commandments are, they're telling you, you break these laws. It's already built into creation that you're going to be punished. These laws are guidelines showing you how to do things in a right fashion, in a righteous fashion. Of course, that's what we're supposed to be doing is seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How can we be seeking his righteousness if we don't keep his commandments? Which Jesus points out very clearly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will just do that. It's evidence that you love him because you'll be keeping his commandments. But the modern Christian isn't keeping his commandments. You can start at the end. They're coveting their neighbor's goods. And they're coveting often their neighbor's wives. And they get to marry their neighbor's wives because their neighbor's wives get to divorce their husbands. All this is in contradistinction to what Christ taught what the Bible says. Because according to the laws of the governments, you get to divorce all the time and remarry and divorce again and remarry and divorce again and remarry. You have no husband. You have no wives. Because you went and got a state marriage which allows you to divorce and remarry and divorce and remarry and divorce and remarry. Now, I'm not faulting people who have done this. I just got to put it into the category that it's in. Jesus didn't go over there and pick on the Samaritan woman who had had five husbands. But when she answered and said she had no husband, he says, you answer rightly. Because according to Jesus, you were never married. (laughs) Because you were married, married by the laws of your government but not by the laws of God. So he counts that she has no husband. This guy says it only counts as a husband if you get married under the state, which allows you to do what the good Samaritan woman was doing. Well, I say good Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman. But she ended up being good because she repented. And she realized that Christ knew her heart. I I think that when she was on her way to the well, she was already thinking that I've screwed up. I keep marrying, but I never marry. I keep taking husbands, but I never really marry. So what, what does it mean to really marry? See, Romans 13, Paul doesn't say be subject to governments. 
he says, be subject to the higher liberty. I mean, that word there, exousia, means liberty. Aristotle says it means liberty. Thayer says it means liberty. The Bible says it means liberty. But your modern Christian says it means government. It means the power of choice. Well, how did the government get the power of choice for you? Didn't God give you the power of choice? When did God give the government the power of choice? Well, the government got the power of choice because you broke one of those other commandments. You made covenants with them. You made agreements with them. You made leagues with them. All the same word in the in the Old Testament. And you usually make those leagues to get benefits. That's why you make those covenants, contracts, and constitutions. To get benefits. To get protection. Because you don't trust in God. You trust in government. I had somebody tell me the other day, I don't trust in the government. Yeah, you do. And yeah, you will. He's he's getting close to retirement age. He's going to be collecting that check from the government who's going to be able to give him that check because he go, that government goes and exercises authority one over the other. And it takes from your neighbor and takes from your neighbor's children and borrows against the future in violation of another one of those commandments. The Sabbath. Government doesn't keep the Sabbath. It borrows against the work you're going to do next week to pay you this week. That's not the Sabbath. That's the opposite of the Sabbath. The Sabbath says you work six days. And by the way, it says you work six days. It doesn't say you work six half days. It says you work six days. You're to be working by the sweat of your brow in order to sustain yourself. And God, and that's the nature of God. God works. God expends energy to bring things, to create things, to be fruitful. And you're supposed to work six days so that you can have your day of rest. If you don't work six days, you don't deserve a day of rest. If you borrow against the future, says, I will work the next six days if I can have a day off today. <laughs> That's not Sabbath keeping. You think it's counting days. No, it's following a way. The Sabbath is a way. Not coveting your neighbor's goods is a way. Not making contracts with men who exercise authority one over the other is a way. Christianity is a way to live your life. But you don't, you've, you've gone out of the way so far. Now you're stuck. Now if you don't get a marriage license, you can't do a lot of things. If you don't go get a social security number to take care of your parents or whatever or take care of yourself even when you go get the number and you say I don't ever want to collect from here once you go get that number and you start using it you're bound because your actions express an intent now God will see the heart and I understand that a lot of people had to go out and get the number, even though it is the mark of the beast. It is now the mark of the beast. It's not going to be the mark of the beast. It's not going to turn into the mark of the beast. It is the mark of the beast now, because that government 
exercises authority one over the other. And when you get the number, you're saying, will you exercise authority one over the other for me and my social security? And, you know, you want to go to school, you want to get a driver's license, you want to get a bank account, you want to get a job, you got to have that number. If you don't have that number, you might die. And that, of course, is the prophecy you see in Revelations. If you don't get the number, you might not live. You might not survive. We've already gone that route. Now, are you condemned to hell? No. It doesn't say that. It says there's going to be hard times. It says there may be fire and brimstone. It says that there will be judgment and wrath of God. But it also says that the holy angels and the Lamb will be there. Why are they there? To see if you repent. Because if you repent, they'll run out, grab you, snatch you right out of the jaws of iniquity. They'll protect you. But what is repentance? It's thinking the other way. It's thinking, I don't want to control my neighbor. I don't want to force my neighbor. I don't want to burden my neighbor. With my welfare. I'm not going to compel my neighbor to take care of myself. Well, many of you are already collecting those checks. Many of you are already sending your kids to public school. Which all that is socialism. That's all socialism. Many of you don't take care of your parents. You you make your parents have to go collect Social Security in order to survive. Because you don't honor your father and your mother. Remember that, that definition of honoring your father and mother uh, is, uh, it means to fatten, to care for, to provide for your father and your mother, so that they don't have to go get a Social Security check. There is no money in Social Security. It's bankrupt, okay? Everybody should write that down. (laughs) When was it bankrupt? When it started. It's never been solvent. Never, ever, 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 ever been solvent. Because, and the Supreme Court has ruled this time and time and time again. Over the decades, almost right out of the box, it says there is no division of funds. Everything is in that same golden statue. (laughs) Everything's in the same temple. If the temple's operating in the red, there is no funds. And it's been doing that since day one. So you, you, you're, all you were signing up to do is be a surety for debt. So anyway, we're going to talk more. We're going to take this to another level, to another step, when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom.
For there shall be, for there shall arise false Christs, false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that it is, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. That's Christ's words in Matthew 24, 24. He's telling you. One thing he just told you, deceive the very elect. The very elect. That, that phrase right there, and you can go and look for that word elect over and over again in the Bible. That's the chosen. The apostles were chosen. They were chosen to do a job. They were called out. That means, and we see that word called out translated church. It's actually ecclesia in the Greek. Who else was called out in history? By God, through God's prophets, like Moses. Who was called out by Moses? The Levites were called out by Moses. And they were called the church in the wilderness. The ecclesia in the wilderness. Because they were chosen to do what? To serve, to do a job for the chosen people. Because Israel wasn't called out of Egypt. They were kicked out of Egypt. The Levites were called out. They were the church in the wilderness. Now, the people in most general sense might be considered the church in the wilderness because of the fact that they they go to their living temple. The Levites. The Levites were the living temple. They They would set up a tent, but that tent would move around. And it would move around because the Levites moved around. The Levites were the living temple of God. They were actually the living altars of God. When you, when you gave to a altar, you gave to a Levite. You gave to him. This is erecting the altars of Moses. The altars of earth, that would be the congregations of the people. You're, uh, the altar of earth is the altars of Adama. Adama, you're Adama. You're walking, living, breathing Adama. The clay of mankind. And God has breathed life into Adam and Eve. And they, they were now this uh, living Adama, living because the Spirit of God was in them. When Jesus comes out of the tomb, he comes to his apostles and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Has God breathed on you? Has God chosen to breathe on you and awaken you to the truth about the gospel? Because there's a lot of people out there that think they have the truth about the gospel that, but, and claim to be anointed by God, but that is, those are the false Christs, the false prophets. I could be one. I could be a false Christ. I could have a false anointing. I could be a false prophet. How do you know if I'm not? One thing, I don't want to rule over you. Everybody knows me, I don't want to rule over you. But I'm going to tell you like it is. And you tell me, you show me. You show me where I'm wrong. I mean, anybody can sit in their house and argue against what I say and win the argument. 
because I'm not there to show you where you're going wrong. I'm not there to show you where you're incorrect. I'm not there to point out the verses you're leaving out. But Jesus is warning you that even the very elect would be deceived. If it were possible. So some people are going to see this. And some people are seeing this. I actually read a little bit farther into the article. Uh, and the guy is presenting other points of view. I don't know how far he's going to take it. But the first item that he put there. Was talking about Romans 13. He didn't know what he was talking about. Because Romans 13 really says, if if that word, exousia, means liberty, and that everybody said it did, I mean, it's right in your concordance, that it means the right to choose. How did the government get the right to choose for you? Well, in many, how did, how did Pharaoh get the right to choose for the Israelites? Did he just, did God give him the right to choose? No. They made a deal. You take care of our social welfare, our need, feed us. We'll eat at your table. And we will owe you 20% of our labor every year. And the children to such men who made that agreement owed 20% of their labor. And their children owed 20% of their labor. And it went from generation to generation. So 400 years later the people of Israel were still in bondage in the elements of Egypt, in the elements of that world. And they that's where you are at. You've been cursed with bondage by your parents and your grandparents. And part of that is because your grandparents and, and parents did not know the gospel. And part of that is due to these false priests and ministers and prophets, these false Christs who have not been telling you what the word clearly says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. You can't desire to have what belongs to your neighbor. It doesn't say, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods unless the government takes thy neighbor's goods away from them. Then you can desire those goods. It doesn't say that. I mean, this is this is second grade logic. You should figure this out. All your ministers should figure out. Wait a minute. I'm going to go to these men and ask them for benefits. Take care of my parents for me, please. Send them a social security check, please. From these men. And how do they get the money to do that? They take it away from your neighbor. It isn't on deposit. You know it's not on deposit. It's never been on deposit because when the system started back in the 1930s, the government was already bankrupt. It was already operating in the red. It had started a Federal Reserve system, which is a debt system, way back in 1916. And it was having trouble with debt even before that. So you sat down to eat with rulers who were in debt. 
And you said, I would like to eat at your table. This isn't the Pharaoh who had the grain in granaries. This is, you're sitting down and eating with rulers who are in debt already. Saying, I want to eat at your table. I want you to take care of me in my old age. I want you to take care of my parents in my old age, in their old age. I want you to take care of me in case I have a terrible car accident and can't walk anymore. Even though you knew the only way they could take care of you is to force your neighbor to contribute, to take away from your neighbor. You can't argue this any other way. This is the way it is. It's not insurance. The guy who devised the system said it was sold as if it was insurance, but it's not. And he said this in the book he wrote about the Social Security system. So it's not, it wasn't a secret. You know, you can't say it was a secret because you shut your eyes. You put your hands over your ears and said, nobody told me. You're monkeying around with the truth, buddy. See no evil? I don't see any evil in the Social Security system. You don't see any evil in forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare? You don't see that that's a covetous practice? You don't see any evil to to force your neighbor to pay for your child's education? Well, I have to pay in. Well, you know, of course, if only parents who sent their kid to public school paid in tuition, that would be different. But you only have those schools there because you take people who educate their children at home or educate their children in private schools and you force them to pay for your child's education in public school. You cannot physically do that without coveting your neighbor's goods. This has become such a predominantly accepted idea that now your immigrants come here from another country who've never ever paid into any kind of a system whatsoever and they expect the people here to pay for their education, to pay for their welfare, they pay for their apartment. I was always shocked when I heard in Australia, you can work all your life and then you go on your government welfare, social security there. They call it something else. but And you'll get a check for, I don't, I don't remember the numbers, it's 700 or 800 bucks or something. But if you illegally enter the country and get on welfare, you will get more than that guy who worked. Your check, the, the allotment for you is higher than the guy who's worked his whole life to retire in Australia. I was shocked. I actually heard this firsthand from people in Australia. Then I actually read it. Now, there, there's there's efforts to change that. And there's ways the way guys... You know, it's like people say, you know, no government money goes to pay for abortions. Oh, man, are you crazy? <laughs> it is very clear that it does go there. Now, they're clever in their bookkeeping so that it doesn't necessarily look like it. But you have to close your eyes. I was a bookkeeper for a major company. And there's, you can fiddle with the numbers and get away with it. But no, you know, money, government money goes to abor- uh, abortion all the time. 
And it also talks about illegals getting welfare. Illegals don't get welfare. Yes, they do. And it, all you have to do is look at how the, these programs... I mean, you have to realize that public school is welfare. People say, oh, well, Madison was for public schools. Yeah, he was for public schools. For the absolute indigent. They were to help pay their tuition in schools. And they didn't have to do much of that because most schools including Harvard. You could if you were indigent and couldn't afford the tuition, you could still go to Harvard. You didn't need a student loan either to go to Harvard. If you could keep up the grades, you could go to Harvard without it, it, it and you could have no money whatsoever and you didn't have to take out a student loan. How did they do that? Well, they provided in their charter that anybody who could keep up the grades could get an education at Harvard. Even without being able to afford any tuition whatsoever. That's why the whole alumni system, once you graduate and you made the money, they expected the alumni, they expected, they didn't require the alumni to send money back to keep the school funded. And support the school. That's a whole mindset. And it worked. But then you guys got a better idea. You changed your mind. About what you thought was righteous. And you you began to accept the idea. That covetous practices. Is righteousness. Covetous practice is never righteousness. You know, if, if we, if we go to Matthew, let's go back, well, let's go ahead and go right to the top of Matthew. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him, uh, for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be a left here, one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him and privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall the signs of thy coming, of the end of the world? End of the world. What what world is that that they're talking about? The end of? Uh, you know, because that would be important. Is that the end of the planet? Is that the end of the constitutional order or system of government? No, that's the end of the age. What happens when you end an age? Another age. You know, it's the changing of the times. No big deal. Well, it is a big deal. <laughs> but it's not the end of the planet. And Jesus, but you know, almost every time anybody reads anything in the Bible where it's talking about the end of the world, they think it's the end of the planet. No, it's the end of an age. That's all it is. And another age starts up. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. So he's warning them about deception. The question is, have you already been deceived? If you're a proud, arrogant sort of guy and not full of humility, you're going to think you've already figured out the Bible. I mean, I was having a conversation with that fellow and his wife and the Ozark. I don't know if his wife was reading them, but he always signed his emails as if it was him and his wife. And uh, he said, when, when did God ever use a network? When did God ever not use a network? 
Abraham had a network of altars that allowed that when Abraham went to battle, everybody joined him. Why? Because we kill sheep together, so we all like to go to battle together. No, because they had a network of charity. Their altars were a system of charity. These are practical people. They're not just burning up sheep on piles of rocks. Those are symbols of a network. So, I mean, overnight, an army showed up and they defeated these guys who were going around and taking one city-state after another. And why were they taking those city-states? To get their golden statues. (laughs) And take them. And take slaves and take people away to put them to work for them. Because that was, you know, that was a, you know, a commodity. And they made him work, you know, like Popot. Although Popot wasn't very smart in the way he did it. I mean, he marched many people to death, but he got, you know, and so it didn't last for him. But it didn't last for these kings who came in and took Sodom and Gomorrah either. And why? Because Abraham had a network of altars that bound people together by faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. Because you didn't have to pay into those altars. You chose to. And it created a community, a common communion amongst the people. It's it's the only thing that makes sense. If you know understand human nature. But if you want to believe that, you know, putting a doily on your wife's head and and counting your days till Sabbath is what it's all about, go ahead and believe that. But Sabbath is a way, a covering is a way that you live. And righteousness is a way. And most of the ways I see people doing today in modern churches and religions and and even these breakaway unchurching religions, it's not the way of Christ. It's not going to withstand the wrath of God that's already on its way. You gotta repent. You gotta think differently. In order to think differently, you gotta be willing to admit, oops, I misinterpreted it. And he says, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. You know, he had said, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Didn't say a few will come in my name. He said, many. Saying that, oh yeah, we're, we love Jesus. He said, take heed, don't be deceived. But he said there's going to be these rumors of wars and, and I guess there's going to be some wars and see that ye not be troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All these things are beginning of sorrows. That's just the beginning. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise up and shall deceive many. And 
because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, and he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So when was there no stone upon a stone? Well, of course, that was in 60, around 66 A.D. They tore down the temple. Why were they doing it? They were trying to find every little bit of gold. That Some of it was probably under stones, but some of it had leaked down when the fires were so great, it melted a lot of the gold plating and it leaked down between the stones. So they moved the stones to find that gold, which would still be there in in strips of molten gold. And so they 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 tore the temple down, stone by stone. But of course, that's partly a metaphor. When he's talking about stone upon stone, he's talking about men upon men. You know, the pyramid schemes of government. And and that's what he's also talking about. That that all is going to be tore down. So there isn't a man upon a man exercising authority one over the other. Well, that, we saw the actual stone temple tore down and, and you know, it was after 66 A.D., around 78 A.D. It took a little while to do it. In the years to follow, there was still wars and rumors of wars. There was still persecution of Christians where they were hated. But eventually the Holy Roman, the unholy Roman Empire fell and was destroyed. And there was, there was, there was about, in around 160 AD, there was as many people living in Europe as there was in, in, 170 A.D. Oh, excuse me, 1700 A.D. So, the population in Europe was about the same back then, 160, 170 A.D., uh, as it was in 1700 A.D. Or at least 16-something A.D. Pretty close. So, what was different, though, in 1600? Well, in 1600 already... Now, people aren't going to like this, and I don't care whether you believe it or not, but, I mean, it's just part of history. About 1,000 years after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, there was somebody wandering around called William the Conqueror, and he was from Normandy, and he came over and he conquered England. He didn't actually conquer the whole country. That would actually take place over several hundred years. But he conquered Harold. And he took Harold's possessions and his chattels and choses in action. Well, Harold claimed to be the king of England. Now, he really wasn't the king of England. This is the amazing thing. These guys who are always making, you know, it's like the House of Tudor. The House of Tudor is not really the royal family. They're occupying the seat of the royal family. Historians have already proved there's somebody else. There's actually a guy in Australia that he is actually heir to the throne, according to the calculations and the patents that the this is, uh, major historical societies put together. But, you know, he's not going to be able to sit in the seat because it's always being occupied by, you know, the Pharisees of the world. And really, we don't have to be concerned with that. That's all these disputes and wars and all this kind of stuff. It's interesting. But what we have to be doing, what what would Christ say? Go, you know, figure out the patents, figure out who should really be the king. <laughs> no, he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
Well, the kingdom of God does not operate by compelled offerings. It operates by free will offerings. It operates by what Jesus calls charity, what Paul calls charity, what Peter calls charity. It operates by a sacrifice, Corbin, that means sacrifice, of free will offerings where you take care of one another. You have to move back in that direction. You will not move back in that direction until you're willing to admit the direction you've been going in is wrong. Now, when we come back in a moment, we're going to go another route. Welcome back. So anyway, we were reading uh, in Matthew 24 and we went back and started reading some of the beginning of that so that we kind of put it into perspective. And it says, because of iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Uh, so what's this iniquity? Well, they talk about workers of iniquity and we have a whole article up on that so you can find out. Well, one of the things that a worker of iniquity does is he covets. He breaks the law of thou shalt not covet. And he does it under the guise of the fact, while saying that he's a believer. He covets his neighbor's goods. And of course, that's everywhere today. Because everybody wants benefits from bankrupt governments. All governments are bankrupt. I don't know of any government that is solvent. There were a couple a few years ago, but they were invaded and destroyed and taken over. And so I don't know any country that is really solvent now. I mean, maybe the Vatican. I don't. I haven't looked at their books. <laughs> but then the Vatican, that's another whole ball game. We won't go into that right now. But anyway, that, so everybody is joining these social welfare systems in systems that are totally bankrupt that are totally reliant on somebody who exercises authority one over the other, that stone upon a stone, taking from one class of citizens and providing to another. And in almost every case, because they're operating in debt, that class of citizen they're taking from is the unborn. The children not even born. Because they're born now in debt in every single country in the world. This is iniquity abounding. <laughs> okay? And the love for one another. I mean, you're not going to run to the aid of your neighbor. You can't even get people to gather together in congregation. It's like herding cats. Everybody's out for themselves. Oh, I got to go do this. I got to go do that. I can't come. Same thing was happening at the time of Christ. And you can't, you can't even get people to form congregations and contribute to those congregations even a cup of coffee a day. Just give it away, a cup of coffee a day. Or oh, you'll hand a $10 bill out the window to a guy with a sign on the side of the road and have no oversight to see if you're doing him any good whatsoever. You're probably encouraging his sloth. 
but to actually gather together for the purposes of Christ, not to feel good. I mean, most people go to church because it makes them feel good, right? Because it makes you feel holy, because it makes you feel like you're seeking God. It's all about feeling. It's not about doing. It's all about saying you believe. It's not about doing. Jesus said it has to be about doing. You have to be doing and keeping the commandments. and But you're not. These churches are not keeping the commandments. Now, I am saying this to you because I know out there, deep down in the hearts of some people, they are willing to repent. I don't know who they are. God knows. I I don't. But I have to be this voice of one crying in the wilderness to tell you to make straight the way of the Lord. In order to tell you that, I have to show you the straight way of the Lord. In order to tell you and show you the straight way of the Lord, I have to point out the fact that the way you're going now ain't so straight. <laughs> it's It's the antithesis of what God said to do. And you need to repent of that. He goes on to say, who endures to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel, he says, this good news, that's what gospel means, of the kingdom, which is at hand, appointed to the apostles, shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, all other nations, Gentiles. I I believe that word there is, uh, because sometimes they switch on you. And they, they don't really do it according to the words. Uh, no, ethnos, that's the word that we see there. There's 93 times translated Gentile, 64 times translated a nation, and five times translated heathen, and two times translated people. But it's the same word, ethnos. And it's, it's talking about, it really means other nations. It's a term, you know, the Jews were Gentiles to the Romans. See, because that's what it means. It means other nations. It's a reference to other nations. So, so it, it talks about preaching all the world. That, that word world is not in age, and it's not a constitutional order or system of government. That's okay. Mene, which actually really means kind of inhabited places, wherever people are. And uh, even talks about it being preached to uh, all creatures. Well, creatures, it would include corporations and institutions of men. That particular word that we see in that, uh, that one verse. But it goes on and say in verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination and desolation spoken of in Daniel the prophet, and stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Now, when he says stuff like that, whoso readeth, let him understand. I'm not going to tell you what that means. Because I want the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what that means. I can tell you this. Most of the guys who try to tell you what the abomination of desolation is, spoken of in Daniel the prophet, as standing in the holy place, they don't know what it means. Most of the guys out there are telling you what that, that they're wrong. Because those, those guys are the false Christs and false prophets. 
And you know they're the false prophets because they're the ones that are saying it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods as long as you do it through the agency of governments, which you create by contract, which you're not supposed to make. So right there, you got two violations of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) And one of the contracts you make with them is so that you have to do no more ought for your parents. Three violations of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Okay, Shall shall we try to make it four? And so that you can cover your neighbor's wife and marry somebody who was divorced and make divorce really easy. Fork. <laughs> so that you can borrow against the future and have benefits today without earning them. Five. You don't keep the Sabbath. <laughs> Shall we make it six? Uh, kill anybody lately? <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making light of this. I'm showing you with a light heart how foolish you've been so that you with a light heart can repent and turn around and start going the other way. That means you have to start gathering together to become the government of God. And that means you have to start taking care of one another with charity. That means you're going to have to give up a cup of coffee a day to somebody else who is actually trying to teach this to other people, to bring them into a network of congregations, and then you can really start sacrificing on altars of stones. It's hard to find ministers who will understand this. And I've started training a few ministers. I will train a lot more. I will show you. Now, when I say I train, ultimately it's the Holy Spirit has to train you. But I'm going to show you where you're going wrong so you can take the time to try to find out from the Holy Spirit which way to go. And that's a big deal. So anyway, it goes on. Now, remember also that most of this stuff already took place back with the early Christians in the first 100 years, first 200 years, 300 years, 400 years of Christianity. But it will take place again. That's why I'm always against the phrase second coming. Because there is no phrase second coming in the text. Christ can come and go as many times as he wants. And history repeats itself. We're not facing the beast. We're facing the image of the beast. That's a different thing. That's a much different thing. Anyway, I'm not going to explain every little detail right now so that we can keep moving along here. But it it talks about woe unto them that are with child and all this kind of stuff. This, This all happened with the destruction of Jerusalem. But it's going to happen again. There's the tribulations and then there's great tribulations. And of course, the one you're in, as far as you're concerned, that's the great tribulation. So you're going to be in another great tribulation. Uh, such as not since the beginning of the world uh, to this time. Now, he's saying to that time. Well, the tribulation they had in Jerusalem was not like anything they'd had before. I mean, it was it was a bloody mess. And, I mean, tens of thousands of people. I mean, there would be whole cities that were just wiped out in the days to come. I mean, Rome was in a lot of trouble. The Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, wasn't that Pax peaceful. <laughs> That's what Pax means. 
Well, what we're coming on now, it's going to even be greater. You know, because, I mean, in those days, 100,000 people was a pretty big city. Now we got millions of people living in a city. We got billions of people. It's like everybody who was ever born is here today. <laughs> Seven billion people on the earth. And, and we're feeding most of them, and we could feed all of them with what we're producing right now. And we could produce twice, three times what we're producing now, but we have to repent and go back to the ways of the kingdom, not the ways of Monsanto. But you don't understand the ways of the kingdom, and I can't teach them all to you in a two-hour program. But you can, the Holy Spirit can teach you in a twinkling of an eye. But in order to get near the Holy Spirit, you have to turn around and gather together for the purposes of sacrifice, not to be happy in church, not to feel good, but to sacrifice. Then the daily sacrifice begins in the living temple of God. Not some temple built on the Temple Mount over there in Jerusalem. And then, then the sacrifice of the red heifer can begin. Which is, we can start helping people outside of that network. But you're all hesitating. You're not coming together. You're not sacrificing as if your life depended on as if your soul depended on And it does. For then shall come the great tribulation for you. And if you have wasting your time, you're waste squandering your oil, the door will be shut and I can't open it up for you. So except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ. Now he's starting to, actually this should probably be another paragraph. But, So he's talking about several different times, especially since he repeats himself. I have told you before. But he's talking about no flesh even surviving anywhere. So this is this is really serious stuff. Now, I told you that I would uh, take a look at that article uh, during the break, and I did. And, he, and the guy has some interesting conclusions. He says, as long as the requirements are reasonable and not against the Bible, a man and woman should seek whatever formal governmental recognition is available. In other words, licensing, etc. And I, if you go to our article on marriage at preparingyou.com, I've, I've show you, you know, what was going on in the 1700s, what was going on in the 1800s at the beginning of that article. So you can see how we moved from a natural relationship of husband, capital H, wife, capital W, to what we have today is a legal marriage where you take this woman as if she was your wife and she takes you as if you were her husband, but you're not. You're really a part of a three-party contract. He says, unless it's against the Bible, making covenants with the gods, the ruling judges of the inhabitants where you go, is against the Bible. So, what he's telling you is that you can do what's against the Bible as long as you don't think it's against the Bible. (laughs) But he doesn't know. But anyway, so that's why I bring it up. Number two, he says a man and a woman should follow whatever cultural, familial, and covenantial practices are typically employed 
to recognize a couple as officially married. Well, except for those things can change all the time and that they vary. And I mean, like that would include what some of the Muslims do, which would include female mutilation, which is all terrible. So, no, that doesn't make any sense. That's a, a total cop out. It, and the third, he says, if possible, a man and a woman should consummate their marriage sexually, fulfilling the physical aspects of one flesh principle. Well, every hooker does that. So, no, that isn't it either. This is very incomplete. The purposes of marriage is to have children. Yes, that if someone ever consummates the marriage with intercourse, they're not really married. It is essential that you consummate the marriage. But you must do it for the purposes of being husband and wife and father and mother. If if some of a woman got married to a man or a man got married to a woman and they knew they could never have children and they kept that a secret, there is no marriage. Yet there was consummation. There was no marriage. Because the purpose of marriage was absent. And they knew it was absent. And they kept it a secret. So there was no meeting of the minds. But anyway, you know, they could, if they knew they couldn't have children, but then they wanted to adopt, well, then it would be a real marriage. Okay? So, I mean, there's lots of things to it. And I'm not going to make... Somebody would be codifying what I say if I, I'm not careful. But really what we want to do is is go another whole way altogether. Now, this is another thing that came up this week. Somebody talked about uh, meritocracy. And uh, they they were talking about a meritocracy was uh, uh, compatible with uh, anarchy. And anarchy, you know, the kingdom of God is compatible with anarchy because you're not to exercise authority one over the other. You're not to have rulers. You're, and Jesus says this, you're not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. So his government, you don't do that in. But that requires people who come together with the purposes of loving one another. Because you still have to be bound somehow, but you're not bound by contract because we're not to make contracts to bind us. We're supposed to maintain our liberty, that perfect law of liberty, where we have free choices but we're, yet we're a government. Well, we're a voluntary government. And that's why you go to church, to be that voluntary government. Providing the benefits of government without taking away the right to choose that was given to you by God from your neighbor. And they talk about a meritocracy. But the meritocracy is defined, in case you haven't heard that word. I, I was unfamiliar with it, pretty unfamiliar with it. But I, I looked up a present definition that you would find by Googling. It is a government uh, or, it says a government or the holding of power by people selected on the basis of their ability. Well, to some degree, the kingdom of God is a meritocracy. Now, how would how would that work? You know, and I wrote here, that uh, is generally incompatible with an anarchy, which is the absence of rulers. And, of course, the kingdom of God is absence of rulers. Each man must be ruled in his own heart and in his own mind by God, but yet still be a government. So how do you do that? 
where you have to come together with some other purpose than to feel good. <laughs> so, <laughs> you have to come to par- together with the purpose of righteousness, which is doing good. So, you, so, can a meritocracy be a government where people hold power, it says government or holding power, but not, but still be compatible with the anarchy nature of Christ's government. Now, anarchy doesn't mean chaos. It means without rulers, without stone upon a stone, without exercising authority one over the other. So what power would these special selected individuals hold? They wouldn't hold the power over you. They wouldn't be able to exercise authority over you or your wife, or your children, or your marriage. They couldn't exercise authority over those things. But they could hold power over something. And then they would meet the qualifications of a meritocracy. Well, they they hold power over what you lay upon those living altars. What you give them. You give them that cup of coffee a day. Now, don't send me coffee. I don't drink coffee. <laughs> uh, but the the price of a cup of coffee. I mean, you can get your coffee at Starbucks or you can get it at Safeway or Food for Less. <laughs> but anyway, wherever you get your coffee, send, give up a cup of coffee, fast from a cup of coffee, and and send that off. Not doesn't have to go to me. You You find, you choose the person that you think is properly merited to be a minister of God. It's your choice. That that choice is in your hand. But you got to give, you have to sacrifice, not to the guy on the street corner with a sign. Don't give to him. And I can't say never give to him. There might be a time when you give to him. But you have to use your God-given wisdom and, and spirit to make these decisions. So, I go on, there could be a form of meritocracy that is compatible with anarchy, but the leaders selected would not have power over the people and their personal right to choose. They would have power over what the people freely chose to give them, but not over the people themselves. In such a government, there would be no forced taxes or tribute, no draft, no corvy system of statutory bondage, which is all of what you have today. But you haven't been seeking that kingdom. You've been seeking the benefits of the other kingdom. Now, I know some of you don't really want those benefits. But not wanting the benefits of the evil systems of the world is not the same as seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I, I went on to tell them that there are samples of such examples of such governments throughout history. Israel operated entirely by free will offerings for hundreds of years. Until somebody said, hey, let's have a king. (laughs) Let's reject God. Not have him rule over us. We'll have a king. And he will exercise authority. And he will take and take and take and take and take according to Samuel. But we want that like the other nations. Well, the kingdom of God is not like the other nations. And so now we get into Isaiah 58.1 is where I was going to take you. But... Basically, we, we started talking a little bit about marriage here and, and making these contracts, covenants, and, and agreements with the world, the constitutional orders and systems of government. And if you go read the article, we show how 
it was the brother of of Marie Antoinette, uh, Joseph II of Prussia, uh, who was uh, starting to require that all marriages be civil. And uh, and we've gone so far away from what it should be that we can't get back there. When uh, people say, well, I, I want to get rid of my marriage license, I want to not have one and all that. That is not the answer. The answer is to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And that means you have to come together for the purposes of Christ. And that's what the church is. The church, Jesus did not establish the church. Now, what do I mean by that? Jesus, or let's put it this way. Jesus did not appoint. He did establish the church by choosing certain men, calling them out. But he did not appoint a church. He appointed a kingdom to the church that he established by calling them out. Now, who are those called out today? It's not people who say they're separate and say they're called out. It's people he's actually calling. And I can't tell you exactly who they are. I'm still trying to find them. I think I've been called out to be this minister, but I could be crazy. You have to decide, and the only way you can really decide is to listen to the Holy Spirit in your own heart. In order to listen to the Holy Spirit in your own heart, you have to shut up. You have to be still. You have to, and if you can't hear God's voice, you want to get closer to God. So if you want to get closer to God, what draws you nearer to God? Hebrew word says, what draws you near is sacrifice. You have to sacrifice your time and gather together in congregations of faith, hope, and charity, operating by the perfect law of liberty to be the government of God, to take care of one another in a righteous fashion rather than in a fashion of force. Isn't this what John the Baptist said? Share your coat, share your coffee, share your meat. And do it in a righteous way, in a way that strengthens the poor. I don't think that $10 out the window to a guy with a sign strengthens the poor. I don't necessarily think that even giving to the Red Cross, which is a pretty good organization a lot of times, is strengthening the poor. I know giving money to the governments of the world that uh, exercise authority one over the other, they're not strengthening the poor. Go to Chicago, go to Detroit. They're not strengthening the poor. They're making them weaker. They're Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I'm not saying don't pay your taxes. You may have to pay your taxes because of the agreements that your parents and your grandparents and even you have made. What I'm saying is turn around and start seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Because it's going to take a miracle and we're only going to get a miracle if we've started to turn around and go back to our Father's house. We, we, we can't even get there from here. But we have to try. We have to strive. We have to persevere until the end. So, you kind of see a pattern here? That, that we're workers of iniquity now. We're, we are doing contrary to the will of God. 
We are violating the Ten Commandments over and over and over again as a matter of practice. But we go to church and we sing songs. Not going to cut it. You're going to say, many shall say, oh, but look, we built these cathedrals and we had these churches and we had these big altar calls and we sang all these songs in your name, Jesus. And he's going to say, I don't even know you guys. All the stuff you've been doing, it isn't getting you closer to me. Now, I will tell you, some of the people are getting closer, but they have to perfect, be perfected in Christ. We'll be right back. So, welcome back to the Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, if you read in Galatians uh, 3, I think it is, uh, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth not nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. So, are we children of God? Then we are heirs. But I don't know if you're a child of God. Uh, are you a servant? Because you're supposed to differ nothing from us, but as a servant. But yet the modern church is telling you, no, nothing you have to do, nothing you have to disbelieve, nothing you have to do. But a servant has things to do. And and James makes it clear: if you're not doing it, your faith is dead. It's not real faith. It's fake faith. And I don't care how emotional you get about it. It's fake faith. Now I think that that if you're listening to us at all. Somewhere down inside you is real faith. We want the real faith to grow up and blossom. And we want the fake faith to be set aside. I talked in the last couple of weeks about fasting. Researchers found that fasting could literally jumpstart a new immune system in you overnight. That would actually even you know retard the aging process. I was out with some people that were close to my age. And I had to cultivate a slow walking pace to, <laughs> so that I didn't get out ahead of them. <laughs> and uh, they couldn't cross fences. They couldn't crawl under fences. They couldn't do any of those things. Uh, and they're all, several of us were about the same age. And I'm thinking like, whoa, these guys, have, and one of them was a doctor. <laughs> so, <laughs> But uh, not in very good shape. Uh, they think they are, but they're, you know, not by my standards anyway. But uh, fasting. Fasting from what? From the elements of the world. Seeking the elements of the kingdom. But anyway, it says, uh, but is under the tutors of governors until the time appointed of the father. So the fact is, is that, uh, and we'll have to look at the words governors. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. 
and that we have an old article on elements, which is the rudiments of the world. And those rudiments of the world are the world, the constitutional orders and system of government. But Galatians also goes on in uh, uh, chapter 5, starting out, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Eh, you missed that. You're all entangled again in the yoke of bondage. You can't undo that by any other means than seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God is a government that operates by faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty where you, where you can share your coat and your meat in a way that strengthens the poor. It requires ministers who understand the ways of Christ. And it is hard-pressed to find them, much less find the congregants. But I tell you the truth, this is the interesting thing. Is the elder in the congregation and the ministers are like the left and right foot. They work together. It is the elders that help strengthen the ministers and the ministers that help strengthen the elders. Each one has a role to play in the kingdom. And together, the communion they create makes them all a part of the body of Christ. And welcome at the feast. Second Peter says in uh, chapter 2, verse 20, For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which I am trying to give you, the knowledge of what he was really saying, they are again entangled therein, overcome. Latter end is worse than the beginning. That's where you're at. So the destruction that you saw in Jerusalem, it's going to be worse than the destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction that is coming. So you need to turn around. So over and over again, everywhere you go in the Bible, it's telling you what's going on. You go to Isaiah 58.1. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sin. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Isaiah said it. John the Baptist was doing it. Paul was doing it. But you misinterpreted Paul because you don't realize that he preached Christ first and Christ said, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the people he was talking to were doing that. They were getting some of their old churchianity and their Romanness and their Jewishness and all this stuff in the way. And he was saying, oh, set that aside, set that aside, set that aside. But unfortunately, today, you know, a guy, you know, he says, well, Paul says, put a doily on my wife's head. So I put a doily on my wife's head and now I'm right with God. No, because you're not doing what the early Christians were doing, which was this network of daily ministration through faith, open charity, where the people in Jerusalem could help take care of the people in Greece and the people in Galatia could help take care of the people in Corinth because they had this vast network where Paul knew where to take the funds. He was the big-time guy because he could travel around because he was a big-time guy to begin with. And his half-brother was a big-time guy in Rome. And his... Uh, and his... Uh, uh, would be daughter, no, niece-in-law, <laughs> Claudia, uh, was a big-time gal in Britain and in Rome. 
uh, which, uh, you know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you have to do some more studying. But he goes on to say in Isaiah, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinances of God, like you guys have been doing. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Approaching, how do you get near God? Sacrifice. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our souls, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, the day of our fast ye find pleasure, and exact all our labors. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. You've got to start weaning yourself off of the addiction of the benefits of the world. Now, I'm not saying you have to go cold turkey. I don't want you starving to death. But you have to start going the other way. So, if you if you receive from the wicked ways, the ways of force, you should take only keep what you need to keep. The rest you should give away to somebody else who is seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You should remain a servant. You are not a child. You are first a servant. Even the child who is heir is a servant. What did the prodigal son do? He came back to be a servant in his father's house. And the more you come back to be a servant in your father's house, the more the father will run out to meet you halfway. And you will need that because you ain't making it back on your own. Is it such a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day of the Lord? Is it not this the fast that I have chosen to to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free and that ye break every yoke? You're not getting anything from the world except because you yoke your neighbor and your neighbor's unborn children who will have to pay the debt back for the benefits you receive today. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house when thou seest the naked that thou cover him and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? So, It isn't about not eating food or wearing sackcloth or looking humble. It's about always the sacrifice has gone to a purpose. It wasn't burning up sheep. It was cooking them and to feed the hungry and the needy of society. Then shalt thou call and the Lord shall answer. If you're taking care of the needy. Of society, it is not the job of government to do it. And they they will even tell you that. We don't even have to take care of you. We can just keep taking from you. It is your job to be the government of God. Thou shalt cry and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, 
the putting forth of the finger and the speaking vanity. And if thou draw out thy soul to be hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness be as the noonday. You, this is what you want. You want the darkness to go away. You want to see. You have to be willing to see that you have not been the benefactors of righteousness. You have not been seeking the ways of the kingdom. The Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones and thou shalt be like a watered garden and like spring of water whose waters fail not. But you have to be taking care of the needy of your society. Now, your society is not the society of the wicked, so you don't have to take care of everybody who's hungry. You don't have to take care of everybody who is in need. You have to take care of those who would be willing to knock the yoke off of their neighbor and not put their neighbor into burden. Not to put their neighbor's children into debt and curse them with the debt of your own wantonness. This is a process because you're just not going to turn around. The process of condemnation took place over many years. The process of seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness takes place over many years too. It is a step-by-step process where you turn around. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the Holy Lord honorable, and shall honor him not doing thine own way, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. But what did we talk about the Sabbath? The Sabbath is you work the six days, and then you take the rest. That is how you keep the Sabbath. It isn't counting to seven. It's about the order of things, the way in which you do things. If you're taking benefits from the world, you're already in violation of the Sabbath because the world is borrowing that money against the future. Now, you may have to take those or die. You may have to eat those corn husks because you are in there. But you you can, right where you're at now, start turning around and seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness by gathering together with others seeking the kingdom of God. In, in known congregations of record and, and start perfecting your pastors and your ministers as elders of your families by giving to them and rebuking them if they do not do well with what you give them in, the, in taking care of the needy. So you want to find ministers who are not slothful, who are not self-indulgent, who are not lazy, who are are diligent in the ways of Christ and you want to support those ministers in reaching out and bringing other people into this network. I have people tell me all the time that they understand the concept of the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But then they say things where they don't understand the concept of the church. The the church is this separate body, separate from the world, but also separate from the Elders of the uh, of the congregation, they gather together in a congregation of ministers. Now the problem is, is to get find 
12 men who are actually doing what the first century church was doing. Well, I don't think we'll find them until we find 1,200 elders of families who want to do what that first century church was doing. And, of course, the apostles were bickering and fighting until... until even, even after Pentecost... There was still some bickering and fighting going. <laughs> they are human beings. Just like the elders are human beings. We are seeking the kingdom. We, you don't jump into it. There's no automatic, oh, I got baptized, now I'm it. I had a religious experience, now I'm in. And now everything I know, I know because God is telling me. No, it's a process. Because you're in an infinite kingdom. There are layers and layers. There are many houses, many layers in which you, you need to go. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations. And thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach. The restorer of paths to dwell in. The kingdom of God is a way. You must walk that way for God to come and fill you with that noonday light in a dark world. You have to turn around. You have to go this other way. And it involves fasting. Fasting from judgment. Which is what forgiveness is. I cannot absolve you of your sins. That's not what forgiveness is. But I can forgive you of your sins that God may judge you. And God will be a good judge. I will not be a good judge. But I have to tell you like it is. You have not. You have gone the elements of the world. You have made covenants, contracts. Your parents have. You've been cursed with the, the greed and wantonness of your parents who could not see that they were going away. Now, I'm not picking on your parents. God is judge. But it's very clear that society has moved from a free nation to a socialist nation whereby people believe that they are entitled to benefits at the expense of their neighbor. And they try to tell me that I'm entitled. I could go collect Social Security. I'm entitled. I paid into it for years and years and years. But if I'm really a servant of God, I have to be separate from that. I have to waive my right to that. I have to continue to labor to make my living in hopes that the congregations will repent and turn around and go the other way. But if you want your life to be filled with the noonday sun, even in the darkness of this world, you have to do what Isaiah said, what John the Baptist said, what Paul said, what Christ said. You have to forgive and give. You have to come together with that intention. And there is no way you're going to do this. You know way you're going to go down this journey without God bringing you face to face with the dark corners of your own personal spiritual temple. Without looking at the problems that you have had over the years. I tell you, this is where healing comes. This is the only way it comes. is through Christ. Through this true anointing Christ came 
to what? To serve. If you're gathering in the name of Christ, you're gathering to serve. Not be served, but to serve others. Yes, take care of your family. Take care of your spouse. But you must, you know, somebody said to me just last night that the kingdom is about family who care for one another. That's what they eventually got around to saying is that the kingdom is about families. At the core of the kingdom is families that care about the next family as much as they care about their own. God will give you grace if you care about your family. But if you don't care about the next family, and not just not just those families who can reciprocate. See, why, why do you give to a minister rather than just give to the individual? Because there's no way that you can get... Well, there are some ways, but there are few ways that you can give to the individual... But most of the time, when you give directly to the individual, you will create a reciprocating relationship where they will feel like they owe you a favor. And even if you never say they do, they will develop a loyalty to you personally. Well, that's great. And that's fine. That's part of community. But it's not kingdom. Kingdom is where your loyalty is to the God of the network, the God of the nation. Nations are always networks. And that God of the nations, I mean, like Saul, you know, uh, all these, uh, you know, they, they had leaders that they appointed from the top down. But if you are each to be kings and queens in your own household, you need to appoint leaders from the top up. But those leaders you appoint from the top up, going back to that word meritocracy, they don't rule over you. But they have power over something. What they have power over is what you give them. And what you give them, you give them for the purposes of helping your neighbor. And so they help your neighbor. But when does their neighbor have loyalty to them? Well, they could. But the reality is, is that the only reason they had something to give to your neighbor is because you gave it to them. And they know that. But it cuts that direct personal reciprocating bond. Now that reciprocating bond can become national. Which is taking it back to Abraham. Abraham was setting up altars for the people, his neighbors, round about. And because of that, when Abraham had to go and save his nephew from these conquerors, all these other people he had helped set up altars with owed him no allegiance. But they said, we're going to go help Abraham. Because he showed us the way to bind our society together by faith, hope, and charity, which leaves each man at liberty. That's the perfect law of liberty. Because we're bound by love, not by chains of contract, not by covenants, contracts, and constitutions. This is what made America great because the wilderness required that we bind ourselves together with this caring for one another. We still understood those lessons. 
Nowadays, we don't understand those lessons. The people don't understand those. They think, well, the government's supposed to take care of us. They're supposed to take care of my parents. And I have the sons of ministers trying to talk their father into collecting Social Security, even though he doesn't need it, so that they can take vacations. They have extra money to take vacations with. Because they don't understand the kingdom. And why do they not understand the kingdom? Because the pastor has not been preaching the kingdom (laughs) to his own children. (laughs) Or that his children aren't... Well, I know what he preaches, so I know that he hasn't been preaching the kingdom. He has been deceived. Which takes us back to those original quotes that we talked That many would be deceived. Even the very elect... But he is being challenged. As long as I know him, he'll be challenged. (laughs) As I am challenging you now to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness by seeking to take care of one another. I don't know if you're a child of God. But I know that a child of God, heir to God's grace, comes as a servant because Christ came as a servant. So anyway, gather together, join us on the network, join us uh, at preparingyou.com and join the network and start congregations, find ministers and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Till then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.